Welcome back to the Book of Esther. We are in a series called The Queen's Gambit, and today we come to Esther chapter 8. One of the unique characteristics of the Book of Esther is the absence of God. In the Esther story, God's involvement is implicit rather than explicit. It is providential more than powerful, and it is intermittent rather than immediate. The fate of the Jewish people is at the center of the story, and here in chapter 8, we see that the involvement of Queen Esther and Mordecai is important to the survival of this people. There is a call to involvement that will rack the nerves of Esther as she needs to approach the king again. In this particular scenario, she has already had a lot of life-altering stress. She was an individual that was brought in as a replacement queen for Queen Vashti. And what we find is that she marries King Ahasuerus. And what we find then is that she kept her identity as a Jew a secret for a long time. When she does find enough courage to reveal that she is Jewish and that Haman has written a decree to exterminate the Jews, she then has to come to this defining moment in her life to confront the situation, calling upon King Ahasuerus to reverse the decree. And that's where we are in chapter 8. Haman now is out of the way, though. What we found is that the gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai upon is, by a reversal of fortune, going to be his execution. Now we would think that all trouble is out of the way, except for one thing. Haman had an irrevocable decree written that calls for genocide. And what we find is that decree is still enforced, and there are soldiers, the armor, army of King Ahasuerus, that will need to carry out that decree as written by Haman. Now, one of the subtle themes that we find in this particular chapter is this is not just a confrontation between Mordecai and Haman. It's a confrontation between two groups of people. You see, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, Haman is a descendant of Agag. And what we find is that Esther and Mordecai are descendants of Saul. And so one of the things that we're going to talk about this coming Wednesday night is that connection helps to explain why there is animosity, not just between two people, but between two groups of people. You see, for centuries, the Agites had been the violent enemies of the Jews. And the original readers would have understood this. So I want us to think of a contemporary comparison. I want you to think of the Israelis and the Palestinians. And I want you to think of them as perpetual enemies and occasional adversaries that seek to bring damage to each other. Last week, we made a distinction between an enemy and an adversary. An enemy can be somebody in theory or philosophy, someone that is looked upon with suspicion. An enemy is an individual that is always a potential threat, 
but it is an adversary that is an actual threat. And so what we find taking place is these two groups of people have always been at the core hating one another, but it's not until Haman becomes an adversary against Mordecai and consequently all the other Jews that we find this irrevocable edict is still hanging in the background. Oddly enough, it seems as though King Ahasuerus is oblivious to the fact that now that Haman is out of the way, this, this decree is still in effect. And this decree calls for the extermination of the Jewish people. Now, Haman has been removed and all of his assets have been redistributed to Esther. And what we find taking place, it says here in verses 1 through 3, the same day King Xerxes, that's the same individual as Ahasuerus, here in the NIV, they use the name, the Greek name Xerxes. The same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king takes off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai. So what we find is now Haman is out of the way. But now we find that Mordecai has been elevated. He has the royal robes. He has the signet ring, which gives to him the authority to write another decree. So as we walk through this chapter, the first thing we notice in verses 1 and 2 is the blessings of uh, Mordecai. He is an individual that has been elevated, and he has been given an appointment over the entire estate of Haman that has now been given to Queen Esther. Well, then we come to an interesting section of chapter 8. It is this decree that is hanging in the background that Haman wrote that continues to threaten the Jews. And beginning in verses 3 through 6, Esther will need to make a second request of the king. And so again, King Ahasuerus and Queen Esther are at the center here. And in verses 3 through 6, she is going to call upon King Ahasuerus to remove the consequence of this potential threat. Listen to verses 3 through 6. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, and she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, you see a little bit of buttering up that is going on here by Esther. Let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? So she is calling upon the king to put away this decree. And Esther is now fearful, not so much for her own life, but for the lives of her fellow Jews. And so in dramatic flair, Esther falls at 
Ahasuerus' feet and pleads with him with intensity. Now, he grants authority to Mordecai to write a counter-decree, and that is found in verses 7 through 14. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Now you're going to have two decrees that are irrevocable one to destroy the Jews, and this one that is going to be written by Mordecai to protect the Jews. Verse 9, it goes on. At once the royal secretaries were summoned, and on the 23rd day of the third month in the month of Sivan, they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, the governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces that we saw in chapter 1, stretching from India to Cush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. So it's very detailed here. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. So it is the Pony Express carrying out this decree to all the provinces, and here's what the decree says. Verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. And the day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So it gives to them the right and the authority to defend themselves. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. It's not until chapter 9 we're going to see a real problem that takes place with how they approach this decree. But in this counter-decree, which mirrors the first one written by Haman, what we find is that a few months from the time of the writing of this decree, it enables the Jewish people not to be threatened by those that are going to carry out the, spoil, uh, the decree of Haman. And it says that they are allowed to take the spoils of uh, who they defeat. Now, the joy of this is overwhelming. In verses 15 and 16, at the end of the chapter, it says, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white and a large crown of gold and purple of fine linen. So he is dressing the part. He is second in command. And then it says here, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because of the fear of the Jews had seized them. Now that's the end of the chapter. So we saw the blessings of Mordecai, we see the 
basic elements of the decree, and we see the joy that it brings to the Jewish people. Now, it all seems straightforward, but here comes the complexity of this chapter. As the book of Esther reaches its climax, the Jews of Persia have turned a political defeat into a political threat. And here's what I mean. Mordecai, in this new decree, in chapter 8, verse 11, starts off first by permitting the Jews to gather on the 13th day of Adar to defend themselves. But he goes on to permit them to destroy, kill, and exterminate all enemy forces, which includes, which includes non-combatant women and children. This is not just soldiers. This is also women and children that fall under this decree to get the threat out of the way. So as verse 13 notes here, what we find taking place is something more than simply defending themselves. Mordecai gives them the permission to avenge themselves. You see, they had not been attacked yet. This is a preemptive strike that Mordecai is empowering. The chapter ends with the people overjoyed. However, on the whole, these verses seem to indicate that the Jews attacked their enemies without immediate provocation. Now, let me tell you why. Haman is out of the way. He's gone. So, even though an irrevocable decree is in place, without this individual leading the way and pushing the attack, it is quite likely that this is never going to occur. However, what we find is that the Jews attack their enemies without this immediate provocation. And at that point, do you know what it becomes? A crusade. Do you see the complexity of this? All of a sudden, it's no longer self-defense. At this point, there is the permission to reach back into the annals of history and bring up this ongoing conflict between the Agites and the Jews. Now think about this in our own day and age. What provokes the Jews and the Palestinians to constantly be in conflict with one another? It's not immediate pressure. It goes back centuries. It goes back all the way to Abraham, in fact where there are two children, Ishmael and Isaac. And this perpetual hate that has gone on for centuries and centuries and centuries often leads to conflict and to killing. According to most Jewish commentators, they believe that what is being empowered here is permissible. But here's the conundrum. And there is a call for the Jews to be involved. And that is kind of what we see taking place in this chapter. They're willing to get involved, but more than protecting their family, they are going to carry all this hatred from previous generations into the moment. That can be a problem. For you see, the defeated enemy, that most Jewish commentators believe, will nurture the hope of revenge at some point. Therefore, all the people need to be exterminated. Do you see what happened? The extermination of 
the Jews under Haman's edict has turned around to a decree that says the enemies of the Jews must be exterminated. This becomes a problem. You see, Jewish commentators also suggest that if they simply defended themselves, well, the mildness of that type of response will encourage the enemy to take advantage of what is perceived as hesitancy. So you've got to go overboard and you have to attack. Now, here's the problem. Much of what we find in the Old Testament violent passages, many times people will go into the Old Testament searching for these types of stories to justify attacks upon other people. And that's not what this is for, because the Old Testament is to lead us into the story of Jesus, who has a counter-message. He says, love your enemies. And that's an interesting dynamic that begins to take place. It's not so much that we shouldn't defend ourselves against our adversaries who make an action, but simply because in theory they are our enemies, it does not justify us to be able to attack, to eliminate them, because these are the individuals that are also made in the image of God. Do you see the problem of this text? It presents a problem because it's there in the Old Testament story, and we can dive into it without understanding where the story is leading to the foot of the cross, where Jesus was pressured by individuals to take up the sword. In fact, Peter was one of them. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pulls out his sword, and he's going to chop off the head of a Roman soldier. He misses and chops off an ear, and Jesus says, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by it. In other words, as long as we continually perpetuate the myth of redemptive violence, it will not only continue to create conflict, it will not only continue to create hatred, it will continue to kill people. All of a sudden, everyone is at risk. That includes us, and that includes others. Who's left standing? Well, Queen Esther does. But think about all of the people that are killed, both the enemies and the Jews that gave their life in the process of carrying this out. Chapter 8 is not an easy chapter. And heads up, neither will chapter 9. But what we can learn from this is very important. We do not need to use these type of stories to justify violence, either personally or nationally or internationally. There are many who will try to use this. And one of the things that I'll talk about on Wednesday night as we kind of follow up on this theme is there's a thing out in the Christian theological circles that's called the just war theory. And that is... We are just in going to war when all of these criteria are met. Well, that might be true, but it seems to me many times we jump to that just war theory as a first option 
rather than a last option. And so what do we do with this text when we finally arrive at the foot of the cross? Jesus had some enemies that put him there. On one side of him and on the other side of him are these type of patriots that want to lead a revolution. And only one of them actually comes to his senses and looks over to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus makes this promise. Today you shall be with me in paradise. I want to conclude this morning with this whole topic is very complicated. This whole topic is complicated and in a sense, it's conditional. The title of this message is Evil is Thwarted by Involvement. But the choice is yours as to what kind of involvement. You can look at violence and you can look at hatred and you can look at killing and you can look at all of this type of thing as a way of getting rid of evil. But have you noticed in the last 10,000 years of human history, it really has not eradicated evil one bit. All it continues to do is foster continued hatred and continued conflict and continued war and continued casualties. Maybe, maybe the counterscript of this chapter is evil is thwarted by our involvement first by trying to understand the other side. Let me propose a theory for you. It seems to me that stories, for better or worse, form people. It forms who they are and what they are like. When dealing with conflict in the biblical narrative, we must first understand that it is a story that is driving that behavior. It's the story of 1 Samuel 15 that's driving this behavior between Haman and Mordecai. There are a lot of ugly things that have happened down through the course of humanity over the last 10,000 years, and there's always a story behind it. And if you look around, these stories drive behavior, personally, as individuals, and collectively, as nations. The stories frame the way we see the world. It also frames the way that we see God. Stories precede behavior. These stories are sometimes subconscious, and it traps us in the framing of how we look at other people. It is stories that can destroy lives, and it is stories that can save lives as well. In the case of Haman and Mordecai, which started this whole thing, what if, what if they went back into their stories, all the way back to the time of Saul and Agag? And what might have happened if these two men could get past the past? And what is it that might happen if they actually got to know one another? The difficulty of this chapter 
is knowing how it applies to us. But if we can look at just Haman and Mordecai, all of this, all of this was perpetuated by their personal conflict. Isn't that amazing? Mordecai passes by Haman and does not give to him the homage that he thinks he deserves. And so Haman says, hey, I'm going to kill this guy. And all of a sudden he says, we're not only going to get rid of Mordecai, we're going to kill all the Jews because they're all just like him. The book of Esther is not meant to provide an ongoing model for how to handle human conflict. It's not. Rather, this book has two purposes. One, to explain the meaning of the Feast of Purim, why it came into existence. And secondly, to display the providential acts of God behind the scenes. We are called to involvement as human beings, but it does not mean that we are justified to hate or harm other people that are different than us. The words of Jesus come into play here when he tells us to love our enemies and to do good to those who seek to do us harm. Many people will think this is foolish thinking, that it's unrealistic, that the only way that you can create peace is by conflict. But there are other ways forward. Perhaps it is the way of peacemaking before we get to the place of hatred that's most important. And I believe that's what we all need to be involved in. What if Mordecai, what if Haman began to resolve their personal differences on a personal level rather than an international level? This might be a whole different story. Maybe in the the wonderful words of John Lennon, maybe, just maybe we should give peace a chance. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and the daughters of God. When Jesus came into the world, he did not proclaim a system that drives the animosity between people groups. He proclaimed the good news which is a collection of stories that can change the heart and mind toward the other. What would have happened if Haman and Mordecai could have changed their mind about each other? Would have saved a lot of lives. If you look at the story of Jesus and let that be your framing story, if you will allow Jesus' vision of God to be your vision of God, Perhaps we can see that peace has a chance. But if your vision of God is flawed, if it's conditioned by stories like this, and the more devoted you are to that vision of God, the worse off you will be, and the rest of the world will be worse off as well. No matter where you might fall on this particular issue, and there are different theological perspectives on this, I just want us to remember that just war is still just war. It's still the loss of lives. Maybe, just maybe, what we can learn this Lenten season is before we pick up the sword, we need to pick up the cross. And if we will follow Jesus as we live in this complicated world, Maybe 
we can see clearly that the lines between survival, which is what is at stake here until it becomes more than survival, maybe the lines between survival and national self-interest, our position in the world, our desire to control the uh, economy, worldwide, worldwide economy, blur the lines between what is just and what is unjust, there will be some Christians that are comfortable trying to thwart evil through weaponry and warfare. And I understand that. But there will be others that will try to follow the path of Jesus, who, like Jesus, when he's on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The things that make for peace are the two great commandments, love God and love our neighbor. So can we just pray about that? Can we just think about that? Can we just try to be a peacemaker? Can we try to follow the path of Jesus? Well, maybe this is why discipleship is so hard. The road of discipleship is a hard road to walk because it involves laying down the sword and picking up the cross. And maybe our concern is not as much our involvement or non-involvement in war and violence, but to be involved in understanding why there is war in the first place. Maybe if we sat at the table rather than in the trenches, we would come to see the image of God in each of us. And that's why the Lord's table is so important. The Lord's table calls us together around this one who sacrificed himself by giving his body and his blood so that we might understand that he died not just for me, but he died for the other. And maybe what we can understand is other people that are made in the image of God are just as important as myself. So this call goes out for all of us to think seriously about this complicated, complicated topic. And what we will see on Wednesday night is that we have to work through it. There's just things you got to work through, and then you've got to feel comfortable where you stand. But in the meantime, let's come to the table and let's recognize that Jesus gave his body and his blood for each of us to lead us into this time Jen is going to read for us a scripture passage and a prayer.